The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. And I'm with John McWhorter. Hello, everybody. This is the Glenn Show, Glenn Lowry, Brown University, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show bi-weekly. There's a conversation at the Glenn Show between myself and my partner, John McWhorter, who teaches at Columbia University and writes for the New York Times. He's with us this week, and we have a special guest. That's Dan Sabotnik, who teaches law at Turo Law Center uh, and writes about critical race theory and the law, amongst other things. And he's here as our guest uh, today. Dan, welcome. Yes. Thank you. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and honor to be with you guys. I follow you guys uh, religiously. <laughs> That's good to know. And Dan, That's you and I go way back. We should also we go way back. That. Yes. We, we've known each other for 20 years. I know your family. You've met yeah. some of mine. So, yes, good to see you. Likewise. So what are we talking about today, gentlemen? John, you got any idea? What? Well, Dan, John. I, I want to ask you. Critical race theory. Yeah. Um, I thought critical race theory was all about informing people of unfair power arrangements in society and how they can shape lives. Let's explain to the audience what's wrong with critical race theory. There's nothing exactly wrong with it. The problem is it's caught on uh, as a mantra and more than a mantra, as a a reigning philosophy in many places where it shouldn't be uh, uh, catching on. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that we can't have a good discussion about critical race theory because that brings in a discussion about where the the black community fits in uh, to to this nation. And it is impossible, impossible to say anything about uh, race uh, uh, and, 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 and the black community more generally, uh, in this environment. Uh, I've tried to publish stuff. You, I'm sure you've tried to publish stuff. Uh, you, you can't do it. And we, and there are people who are working 24 seven to prevent an honest discussion about race, which is why your program is so wonderful. Dan, you wrote the book, Toxic Diversity. Yeah. In, in the aughts. And it was a it was a very good book. You're saying that there's this resistance. What sort of resistance have, have you encountered? What 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 is it out there? Well, I I, I feel okay. Uh, the book wasn't reviewed. Uh, it was it was published by uh, NYU Press. It was reviewed in one law review. Here I am writing about race and law, race and law, and uh, I couldn't get the book reviewed. And I've had a devil of a time uh, writing in this area. Uh, and uh, I, I asked you, John, whether I could talk about your experience. Mm-hmm. You, you told me that was okay. And I, yes. I, I, I'd like to drift into that area because my guess is that your uh, listeners do not know about your personal circumstances. I, I focus, go ahead. Yeah. By focusing on you, I am not ignoring uh, Glenn. I would love to hear 
because I know something about your circumstances, but I, I would love to hear how Glenn fits into the university. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. So, Dan, you you were talking about my circumstances. Which which particular ones? Well, okay, uh, and, and I, I really I'm grateful that you're going to allow me to talk about it. Uh, the idea that you don't have a home in a department at Columbia whose whose uh, 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 vista is race in the United States is is sickening to me. <laughs> there are people. There are people. There are people who who swear allegiance to diversity, who don't believe it for one second, one second. <laughs> and I, it, it, I would like to contribute to a resolution of that problem. Well, I think, yeah, uh, just to make it clear, at Columbia, my billet is teaching linguistics. That's what I was hired to do. And I do not teach courses on race. Um, linguistics is Harvard within the Slavic department. And so oddly, I'm technically a professor of Slavic, but it's linguistics. But what is definitely true at Columbia, um, to whom I owe a great deal, I love the institution, but there is a black Columbia, unofficially, who I think unofficially but conclusively pretend that I do not exist. It's obvious that there is a general idea among Columbia's black faculty that I am someone where it would be best to pretend that I'm not around and to <laughs> avoid me getting any more attention than I already do. No one's ever told me this, but it's just that I've been there for 15 years and there are certain things that have never happened. I've never been asked to guest lecture in class. I have never been asked to participate on a panel. You know, there'll be posters all over campus of some august panel of people, depending on when it is. You know, it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, it's William Jelani Cobb. I've never never been asked to be part of any of those things. I'm sure there is an informal black faculty social organization at Columbia. Even if it's not on paper, I have never been invited to join it. And I'm sure some of them would say that it seems to me that I wouldn't want to, but frankly, they started it and there were never any gestures of that kind. And the truth is, people should understand, I'm not complaining in that, honestly, it sounds bad when somebody busy says this, because it makes it sound like you think other people aren't busy, but I've got so much to do that I haven't <laughs> had time to do most of those things anyway. But the fact is that I'm not asked. And frankly, it's it's not right, especially because, you know, even if I had extreme hard right views, it wouldn't be right, but maybe it would be more understandable. But in my case, frankly, I'm just a cranky moderate. And yet I'm not allowed to join in the reindeer games because I'm kind of not the right kind. It's not right. And life will go on, but it's an indication of the sort of thing that you have run up against for different reasons in different places. And I've also brought up your circumstances uh, <laughs> on many on many occasions. Which oh, means- you! Ha- I'm sorry. I just want to follow that last. You, Dan, have similarly been excluded from venues of uh, in- not in the same way as John. Um, uh, but I, I, I wanted to teach a course in race uh, and critical race theory, and was not able to do that. I see. And I'm I'm reluctant to say anything because people go to the dean, and then all of us, I, I, I've heard more than I want to from the dean, uh, and uh, so I, I I shy away except except in my writing, uh, where I'm very aggressive, and I think I'm aggressive because of the circumstances which I face at the university. You know, I'll actually give one more anecdote just for posterity in case I get hit by a bus. This is. <laughs> This is how these things manifest themselves in real life. It's not a bunch of people turning their backs on you and walking away. The linguistics department, the, the linguistics program became a major 
some years ago. We had to make it into an official major instead of one that you had to petition to create. And it was my job to make it a major. And so suddenly, you know, I had to deal with administration for a time, which is not my forte. But I, I stepped up because that's what I had to do. There was one meeting with a bunch of, you know, august faculty and administrators where I was making my case. I actually put on a jacket making my case that linguistics needs to be a major. And everybody's so enthusiastic. You know, everybody loves linguistics from a distance. I'm frankly the you know, one of the Black faculty members. I've got a little bit of a public presence. Everybody's happy to see me. One person wasn't. There were about 15 people sitting around a table. One of them was a Black male historian. And he is the one person in the five years that I was dealing with trying to make linguistics a major. Luckily, it did happen. The one person wasn't happy to see me. It was the one person who gave me trouble bringing up all these administrative procedures that he says I haven't gone through, not enthusiastic. Now, was that an accident? No. I frankly don't remember the name of this person, but it was clear he didn't like me. He knew who I was and he wanted to give me a hard time. That's not right. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not right. No. And you're too much of a gentleman to make a scene. Uh, which you could have, and I might have, uh, had I been in, in your shoes, which is why Columbia hasn't hired me yet. <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah. Yeah, well, you guys, you guys, you guys are going to sponsor me. Take a look at this guy. He's still got some juice left. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I've got a little juice left. Well, let, me, let me just go on the record here a little bit since we're talking about how we've been treated by our universities. I don't want people to have an inference about my case. That's not true. I've been treated well at Brown on the whole. Ruth Simmons, African-American woman, now uh, retired from her presidency at Brown University, brought me in in 2005. I was warmly greeted by colleagues in Afro-American, they call it Africana Studies and the Center for Race and Ethnicity, which studies that subjects I was writing. Left of center in 2005, believe it or not, Dan. I Uh, I was on the incarceration thing. You know, my uh, Tanner lectures were in the works at that time and so forth. And uh, I bonded with people. Ruth uh, asked me to chair a committee that was looking into how to follow up on the slavery and justice report, which was the revelation of Brown's long involvement, the Brown family and the slave trade and the commerce associated therewith, creation of archives, uh, the launching of a research center uh, (laughs) whose director, uh, Tony Bogues, is a uh, acquaintance of mine. I've been invited to the conferences and so forth and so on. But but when, I don't know when it starts, I guess it starts with Trayvon Martin. Um, and then there's uh, Michael Brown and, you know, and then there, you know, and then there's Black Lives Matter and then there's uh, a racial reckoning and, and there's, you know, we went through a thing. <laughs> and, and, uh, It culminated in the summer of 2020. And, uh, you know, I I felt like I needed to plant a flag on some stuff. I needed to call bullshit on some stuff. And (laughs) ever since I started writing in places like Quillette.com and, uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute City Journal, and I started objecting to virtue signaling and... Uh, empty rhetoric. And I I started trying to say a university is not a a cheerleader for political fads. Yeah. We're in it for the long run uh, and and stuff like that. The invitations have have dried up. 
that that was going to be my conclusion. Of, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm here on campus. I'm the Merton Stones professor, blah, blah. But I, I don't get invited to the conferences and I, you know, or the cocktail parties on the Afro side uh, anymore. Wow. God bless them. Same, same story. Wow. Um, I wrote to you guys about three months ago when I thought of that maybe you'd, you'd be interested in having me on your program uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, I love you guys. Uh, Thank you. And uh, also, uh, I am writing an article. I think I sent you a copy. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. But uh, I, I am now looking for a publisher. Uh, and I know you guys are not publishers, but you speak to a wide audience. Uh, and uh, somebody may be interested in, in this article. It's not quite finished, but it's almost finished. Uh, and I think it's quite good. Uh, and I'm hoping to break through uh, the barriers uh, to uh, honest discussion uh, from my standpoint. Uh, so I'm hoping by, by making this uh, declaration on your program, somebody will jump up and say, I, I like this guy. Dan, talk about the article. Any friend, any friend of you guys is a friend of mine. Um, talk about the article. Okay, so it's called Can We Talk, Really Talk About Critical Race Theory? And it starts with the idea, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to quote. I'm, I'm going to be a little academic here. Uh, this is Derek Bell, who is considered to be the father of critical race theory. Uh, the the racial problem in this country is not people of color, but whites. From black people living in perilous conditions, rage should be expected to become productive. That rape, to become productive, that rage must be pointed outward because rape, blacks need reassurance that others, not they, are the cause of the wretched. I'm sorry for reading. But the problem is, and he's had an enormous impact, uh, the speaker, Derek Bell. The problem is, once you say your, your, your situation uh, is uh, colored by the fact that uh, uh, white people are pushing you down, and you have no uh, power uh, to upset the apple cart in that regard. Once you say that, and I see the whole uh, uh, school of thought as, as tying to that. Well, once you say that, you're telling some people, not all, some people, don't bother. Hang in there, get a, get a C or a D in your classes, pass, get a job. Don't push yourself because the, 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 uh, the, the elements uh, are against you. Uh, and I, 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 the whole article uh, goes goes into um, proving that point, and we don't have we don't really have time for that. But just imagine if you say you don't have power to do to do what you want to do. What a terrible, terrible message uh, to send to young students. Well, well hold on, Dan. I, I want to do the devil's advocate just a little bit to to try to. So here's how I understand it. I understand, well, critical race theory. So it's a part of a larger intellectual development and, and they're bringing something to the law, some of this postmodern kind of uh, deconstruction kind of thinking. And, and they're personalizing it. They're saying, you know, their ideas and their social relations and the two things are not just disconnected from one another. And they're positionalizing it. They're, they're saying... How you think and how you experience depends on where you are in a set of power relations. That's right. Now, the, the flip side of saying it's uh, their fault 
which is what Bell is inviting the Black reader to do, to say it's their fault, is to internalize the responsibility for it and to say it's our fault. And the... I'm sorry, who's, who's the hour the, in this? The, who's the so hour in this? Let, let me just finish this. Let, let me just finish it very, very brief. I mean, so you know Franz Fanon, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, the wretched of the earth, you know, the, this, this argument about power and about self-hatred and about, you know, so that kind of, oh, he just, <laughs> uh, I, I'm saying it's not only agency. That seems to be your point. Your point is a surrender of agency. That's a starting point, yes. It's also power and the experience of subordination and the eating away at the soul. And he's trying to, he's trying, I, I, this is not my argument. This is Derek Bell's argument. I don't actually believe this argument, but I'm trying to make sure it gets heard. He's, he's trying to, to it's faces at the bottom of the well. That's what he calls this book. And, and, I, and I understand that uh, entirely. And my point is that if you tell a group of people you are the deciders in these areas, and white. Uh, if you, you know, if you're not black, uh, you have uh, you have no standing. Uh, once you tell people that, you're 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 skewing the conversation, and and you'll never get it right, ever, because you need to hear from opposition. That's the whole point of diversity. The whole point of this diversity uh, explosion uh, that we've seen is to say to people. You cannot, we, you cannot rely on any one group, one person or one group of people for your instruction. You've got to, you've got to listen to everybody. And the critical race theorists have made it impossible for others to speak. And we, you are, you are, you've, you've testified just a few minutes ago that, 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 that kind of feeling, uh, uh, is yours. You feel constrained. Why should you feel constrained? Why should I feel constrained? Why, why should the black community not say, we welcome you, you'll help us hone our message. That's the whole point, hone our message. And maybe then we'll have some, you'll have, we'll have buy-in from everybody, maybe. Dan, I'm gonna try something here. Just, I'll, I, I'm putting myself in the head of the haters here. And I'm gonna put you into a little box and I hope, and I hope you don't mind. I don't mind at all. You are a Jewish American man of, of a certain age. And yeah. part of what might be informing your vision is you're thinking Jews were roundly despised in the United States almost institutionally until relatively recently. And yet the general attitude among Jews was never, we simply cannot excel. And anytime we do just okay needs to be seen as excellent because non-Jews don't like us. The idea was you make the best of the worst, and that seems to have more or less happened. And you're thinking maybe. Why, why is it that so many black intellectuals in particular find a defeatist message like Derek Bell's so compelling? And what a lot of people would say, there are people looking at this right now, who will look at this soon, and say it's different for black people because the hatred against us is more implacable than it ever was against the Irish or the Italians or the Jews. And so we need a new paradigm. What would your answer, and you know, frankly, I don't agree, but what would your answer to that be? Um, my my answer would be is there's no substitute from hearing from everybody. If you want to get your message across, uh, you, you've got to persuade everybody. And right now, that's not happening. A lot of people, and you can see this uh, in the newspapers just within the last week, things are happening. Things are, are, are changing. The New York Times is writing articles about critical race theory. Uh, 
and things that they never published. While you're right that I'm sure my philosophy is uh, affected by the fact that I'm a Jewish American and I've never complained, um, I don't think that's the, I don't think that that's ultimately the answer that I would give. I would give the answer that I don't have to make it to the top. I'll do what I can. I'll push. I'll get. Some, I'll, I'll have. I'll have friends who push with me, and it'll be good enough. If I if I'm not president of the United States, I can live with that. Uh, even 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 if the reason for why, why I'm not president is that I'm Jewish. That's that's how I that, feel. That's the reason you're not president. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and you you know I, I accept that from you since you know me so well. Yes, you should be president. Now, I just wanted to ask that question. I mean, you know, the most pernicious aspect of what you're talking about, at least in my sense of daily experience, is less that somebody says, well, because of racism, I'm not going to try, than that there's a sense that we don't have to try as hard and that if we only halfway get there, that has to be regarded as excellence. Don't expect too much of us because of racism. That's, which is the same thing, but different. That's the hardest aspect of all of this, that it, it creates a sense that lowered expectations are okay. And when we just show up, we're doing our best. And there are many people who think of themselves as very pro-black who now are making arguments of exactly that kind and thinking of themselves as race men and race women. That's, that's hard. And that does come from something that Derek Bell, I don't think he started it, but that kind of rhetoric that he espoused made attractive. Yes. It's, 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 you know, John, uh, You've given me a lot of food for my article. Uh, and uh, I want to tell you something that you, that you said not long ago that struck with us, that still uh, as, as sticks to me. You were talking about a hypothetical uh, student who comes to your office and, and complains about how racism is getting in, in, getting in his way and he, and, and he hurts. And your response is, no, you don't hurt. <laughs> That knocked me out. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly the story, but what I would tell that person is don't perform delicacy. You know, don't pretend it's worse than it is and think that that's your job as an enlightened black person in the 21st century. And you need to really think about what hurt is. Yeah. And I should tell the audience that particular thing has never happened. But if it did happen, that is what I would say. My message is. Yes, life is hard, and you don't want to minimize things that actually happen to you. But performed delicacy is antithetical to a coherent social fabric. I do very much believe. And why are you the only person? I'm not, I'm, Glenn, I don't know if you've said that in, uh, in, in, in so many words or otherwise. Yeah, Glenn, did you have that? We need, we need to have more people say that. There are things that happen in this world, are the ups and downs and the bumps. And we need people to say it's not the end of the world. Uh, you, if if you hurt from this, you don't have a chance of surviving in this society. This is there are going to be a lot more stones thrown at you for, from all directions and for all reasons. Uh, uh, between now, I, I want I want to identify a problem. I I, I agree with what's what you're saying, uh, Dan, but I, I want to identify a problem. Uh, the specter of failure and the rumors of inferiority. Okay, it's one thing to say, go perform without a net. It's another thing to fall off the high wire. So now the objective facts on the ground 
are very difficult to take. Look at law, order, punishment, shame, uh, condemnation. The racial disparities at the bottom end in terms of behavior, harmful behavior that hurts other people, are stratospheric. Yes. Look on the high end at the exquisitely refined human achievement, which is the very highest level of performance within intellectual and academic and artistic endeavor. Accepting the artistic, African-Americans are as scarce as hen's teeth. Well, let, let's so not, the, Glenn, let's pardon? not overdo that. Okay. 20, 20% of the law school deans in America are African-American. Come on, Dan. That's, I'm sorry, that's worth something. That's worth a lot, in fact. No, I'm I talking about Caltech. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the National Medal of Science. I'm talking about the okay, Nobel. I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm talking about the elite venue. No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you want people to be indifferent about, you know, the slings and arrows and whatnot, you got to give them some cover from the specter of their own failure as a group and from the, the haunting suspicions of inferiority. You can, you can reject it out of hand, but the facts are still staring you in the face. And that is why, that I'll, I'll conclude, that is why the narrative that we all deplore of victimology is so stubbornly durable. Because it's cover from the specter of failure and the rumors of inferiority. It gives us cover. You want to take it away? What are you going to put in its place? Well, let's put it this way. I, I don't think we've made a whole lot of progress uh, over the last uh, uh, 20 years uh, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of performance, racial performance. The gaps in the school system are enormous. They've, they've been enormous for years. And all of the effort, all of the, all of the intellectual effort, all of the money that's gone into it has not changed the balance with respect to things like the SATs or LSATs, object, objective measures. What we get instead is from the from large elements of the black community is these tests are produced by whites. Uh, they don't care about you. They're designed to make you look bad. Uh, we need people to say that. We need people to 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 uh, confront that and object to that. And I don't hear it coming. Well, I've been objecting to it for a long time, and so has John. I'm talking about the community at large. The, the test is just a messenger. The test is just giving us information about the development of people's potential. But it, and, but and to is, shoot the messenger, that doesn't solve the problem. No, it doesn't. And, it, it doesn't solve the problem. Dan, I, I know what you're referring to. I'm sorry? I know what you're referring to. You mean, why isn't the message getting out more beyond weirdos like Glenn? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. so, for example... I had an experience recently in um, Vancouver. I was invited to speak. And, you know, th these things are rarely open conflagrations, but I think I, I think I, I offended the people who invited me at the dinner afterward because of exactly what we're talking about, where we were talking about an actual student in the audience who had stuck up for the idea of having, you know, all black dormitories and saying that she needed that sense of safety. And folks, let's face it, I'm talking about Canada. 
You know, it's not, we're not talking about the United States. It's just the same in Canada, believe it or not. And I had said, you know, politely but firmly, no, it's not that bad. It's not necessary to protect yourself from such a small degree of racism on a campus like this. Did, did you I was, interrogated about, I was interrogated about that at the dinner and I wouldn't budge. I just kept on saying, I'm very sorry, but no, I believe what I'm saying. I do not believe in that kind of performed delicacy. And the people there, no one said, fuck you. But everybody's polite. Everybody shook hands afterward. But I could tell major no-no. I was considered a bad guy. And that, yeah. unfortunately, is normal. That is something that I could have encountered on any college campus. And you're saying that that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. And uh, I, I came across uh, something, uh, a column by Andrew Sullivan the last couple of days. Listen to this. In 2021... Six percent of the corporate jobs, six percent of the corporate jobs uh, went uh, to whites. Ninety-four percent, ninety-four percent went to people of color. Uh, this is from a, Bo- a Bloomberg study cited that uh, Andrew Sullivan cited. That, that's unbelievable. H- how can you? I mean, it's hard to make arguments. Are you saying corporate DEI jobs? No, no, I'm not saying corporate. This is his. So- not the, I mean, it can't possibly be all corporate jobs. So there all, I'm telling you, all I'm telling you is that the, I'm sure that Andrew Sullivan knows that corporate DEI jobs are going to go to minorities. I'm sure he knows that. Uh, this is a, this is, and, and I'm sure this is an aberration. Nevertheless, it tells you something about the status of black people in America. Now, I did read even more recently, maybe it was last night, that those numbers are not holding up for, and they can't possibly hold up uh, when 94% of the, of the higher. This is, this is a very specialized, uh, these are the black elites. This is a college educated uh, professional class. What, what about the ghettos? What about uh, well, the jails that are overflowing? What about the, the uh, welfare roles and, and, the, and whatnot? Well, and what right. about these huge public school systems that are producing uh, millions of kids who can't read and count? Uh, that's the that's what the fat part of the of the distribution where the real inequality is manifest. I, I, I agree entirely. And the question is, what do we do about it? Yeah. Uh, b- besides spitting at white people, and spitting <laughs> at, and spitting at the culture generally. I, what, what do we do about it? Well, <laughs> hating, <laughs> hating the establishment is not going to do anything in that regard. Well, that's the problem for a lot of people. The idea is expressing that hatred articulately is activism. Somehow that's doing something. And that's an it's self-indulgent, it's tempting, it feels good. It's the major drift since the 60s that has done the black community in. You know, the issue is what do you do? And for a lot of people, what you do is you articulate the nature of racism in um in, in a charismatic way. Or Ibram Kendi would say that what you do is you take a that you know, that thing in cartoons that, where you push it down and you make an explosion. You get one of those and you just blow up society and pretend that there's no such thing as standards and allocate everything according to how people constitute a proportion in society. And then a, a round up. The idea is that at least for a while, everything should be roughly half black. Right. And of course, that's a fourth grader's notion of how society is to be changed. And beyond that, yes, it's tough. It's hard. Well, I think you have to take a conservative approach to this broad set of problems. I think you have to get behind the cops and establish order so that they don't loot and whatnot. I think you need to confront the teachers unions and hold them accountable and give families options and whatnot. 
I think you need to embrace traditional values and affirm exactly the opposite of what the cutting edge avant-garde postmodern radicals want to do with the family. I think you have to recognize that the Democratic Party is leading black people around with a ring through their nose and is playing us and uh, declare a certain amount of political independence. I think you only the only solution is moving in a kind of radical and to the right direction and reaction to these things. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I'm a pessimist, not an optimist, but that's what I think is required here. I, I, th- I think it's going to happen. I, I see, uh, I sense that uh, the waves are growing against uh, critical race theory and, 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 and its re- related uh, c- uh, components. What's the evidence, Dan? I'd like to know. Look at the New York Times talking about, uh, what was it that they talked about? I put this in my article. Uh, it's relating, relating to a, uh, an announcement for a job in life sciences at a major university. I can't remember the university now. 75% of applicants were rejected purely, that's their word, not mine, because their diversity statements now required Yeah. Uh, were deficient. Seventy-five percent was was simply yeah. cut off. I heard about this. You heard about that. Okay. Then the rest of the the rest of the study we went like this. Thirteen uh, percent of the final. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's see. Thirteen uh, percent of the applicants uh, were uh, Latinos, who made up ninety fifty. I'm sorry, fifty nine percent of the of the finalists. Thirteen percent of the applicants were Latinos, who made up. 59% of the uh, finalists in life sciences. This is not sociology. This is life sciences. Uh, and on the other side of that, uh, 13% of the finalists were white, uh, but, they, but they made up 59% of the applicants. So the question then becomes, how, how do you read into that, into those data, uh, any... Uh, racism, racial antagonism, whatever you want to call it. How do you do that? Well, you can. I mean, it's been obvious for a long time that that's the claim that there's racial exclusion of Black or Latino applicants in higher education, whether it's admissions or hiring, is absurd. That claim is uh, obviously wrong. Uh, but but now the Supreme Court has spoken on this, uh, Dan. Uh, the, the last uh, decision on affirmative action was pretty unequivocal. So it was unequivocal, but it's so full of holes that it'll never stand up uh, in in the long run. The holes being that you can talk all you want about racism uh, in in your letter to your introductory letter to the school when you're when you're applying. So if the school wants to to apply a, an affirmative action criterion, uh, it's going to do it. It's okay. not going to do it based on anything, it's gonna, not going to do it based on anything else than the statement that you make. Do you have a closing word for the audience, Dan, on uh, the critical race theory issues? Uh, let's see, do you have a closing word? Uh, yes, I do. Everybody has to speak up. We cannot let elements of the population be intimidated by other elements of the population. We all have not only a right to speak up, but an obligation to speak up, because if we don't speak up, the trends develop. And some of those trends are damaging. Many of the trends are damaging. You need to have uh, the, the discipline of a resistance. You can't crowd them out. You can't banish them on any theory. We've got to hear from everybody. That's the only way we're going to get buy-in in the nation. 
And that's what I called for. Okay. Well, I'm in, I'm on board with that mission and I'm doing my part speaking up. So is John. That's what you, the you are. Is you, all did, about. Did, do you have a title for the, for the article? Yeah. So, so far it's called, uh, can we talk about uh, critical race theory? Can, can we, can we talk about critical race theory? Okay. Can we, I'm sorry. Can we talk, really talk about really talk? We really talk. Right, yeah. Really talk. Yeah. All okay. right. Well, I, I'll tell you what, Dan, we'd be happy to publish your uh, essay at glennlowry.substack.com, but I'm afraid you probably were looking for a larger uh, <laughs> audience than that. <laughs> Actually, that's an interesting idea. I didn't realize you were publishers. Well, Published, I mean, you, meaning I put you, it up you, on the you, site. You, pu you publish your it. own stuff. You publish your own stuff, and I didn't realize that you considered publishing. Uh, we guest, yeah, guest yep. essays, kind of thing like that. Yeah. Okay, that's terrific to hear. I, I thank Just you for drop, inviting. Drop me an email, and and we'll we'll talk. Okay. Thanks, guys. Let's talk about life insurance. I am a man of a certain age. I'm in my seventies. My wife is well, somewhat younger. I'm not going to live forever. I need life insurance. So let's talk about life insurance. If you've got loved ones who depend on you, why leave anything up to chance in a worst case scenario? Life insurance gives your family and mine a safety net that can cover expenses so they won't have to worry about money while getting back on their feet. Luckily, Policy Genius makes finding the right policy simple, and their team of licensed experts are on hand to help talk you through it. If you have life insurance, you're ahead of the game. But if you don't, I'm here to tell you Policy Genius can be a big help. And even if you already have an insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius knows how valuable your time is. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks and to find your lowest price. Policy Genius has licensed, award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend on them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so you can protect the people you love. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and to buy it. So head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Okay, John. So we're going to have to talk about something else. And, and the something else, John, 
Looks like it's Ibram X. Kendi again. It's the Bruhaha at Boston University, the piece in the New York Times, uh, in the Boston Globe pieces, uh, people speaking out, uh, disgruntled colleagues, uh, administrative review of the Center for Anti-Racism research. Uh, and we've had occasion on time to time, from time to time here on the Glenn Show to mention Ibram X. Kendi and you know, even to offer a word or two of critical observation about uh, his scholarship and, and his persona and whatnot. So uh, what, what do you make of, of the current uh, situation up there at Boston University? Well, you know, Glenn, it's interesting. I, I have a piece coming out in the Times about this that I think you're, you're not going to like. Uh-oh. Because, um... What I want to know is this. Why is there so much joy about what happened to Kendi? Not only among conservatives, but in the media, it's people of all stripes who are so happy to see that guy getting his butt kicked. What, what is all this joy about? You're joyous. Why? Uh, how do you know I'm joyous? Because you are. <laughs> <laughs> and because, Glenn... In a way, so am I, but I don't know if it's for the same reasons as other people are. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's saying it's about time, but not for the reasons that a lot of people are thinking. I don't, like, for example, preview, I don't think he's a grifter. I don't think that he's been trying uh. to put one over on people. It's not a, that this mere criminal is being brought to justice. I don't think of it that way at all. Do oh, you? Oh, John. No, I mean... I, I I almost don't know what to say, but I'm going to, because we're friends, I'm going to pay you the respect of being honest with you. I mean, mm-hmm. that just feels like, it feels like a pose. The, the line that you are describing to me coming from you feels like a pose. Uh, everybody is uh, schadenfreude. You know, everybody's enjoying the dis- disaster of this guy. Yep. And they're crowing and they're whatnot. And I, I mean, sure. Uh that's not very honorable. That's not very edifying. That kind of response, you know, uh, uh, chickens coming home to roost. What did Malcolm X say after the Kennedy mm-hmm. assassination? They, you know, right. that kind of thing. That's cheap. That's that's not. And and I don't think that's where I'm coming from. But you, <laughs> instead of going to the uh, heart of the matter, which is an empty suit was elevated to an academic a guru position and a ton of money fell on him and the whole thing fell about because he was an empty suit which reveals the superficiality of the virtue signaling uh, mania that uh, ensued after George Floyd got killed in Minneapolis in 2020. Uh, There was never any there there. The emperor had no clothes. This is precisely Hans Christian Andersen's emperor's new clothes situation. This is the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain that's been revealed. Instead of that, you uh, use your lofty position and your megaphone of influence to ask questions about the people who are, uh, you know, happy to see the whole thing fall apart. So, I, you know, I will plead guilty as a former race research director at Boston University who for six, seven years, ran a center on a shoestring that produced real research that has alumni who are serious players in their respective disciplines 
on questions of race and inequality. Uh, and, and that was edifying. That was uplifting. That, that was uh, of a, a, a crown jewel uh, uh, in the uh, uh, offerings of Boston University at an intellectual level. Instead of that, that was me. That was Glenn Lowry in the 1990s, everybody. Glenn Lowry in the 1990s had a Boston University Research Center, and we did real research. And I'm, I'm not going to begin to run down the name of Nobel Prize winners and nationally renowned and internationally renowned, renowned scholars across a half dozen disciplines who were my guests as speakers and as uh, fellows at the uh, institute that I ran at Boston University. Instead of that, you got this. It was rotten to the core. The whole thing was absurd. He was going to solve the racial inequality problem through anti-racist research. He's an empty suit. He doesn't know anything. That's been obvious from day one. So it's not about him. Right. It's about the institutions and about the mania of that moment. And by the way, the consequences of the mania of that moment are playing out in real lives all across this country. With cities overrun with ill-behaved people, with law enforcement apparatus being pulled back, with, with ridiculous ideology, with failed school systems, with mediocrity everywhere you look. Uh, Kendi is, is just a symptom of something that was very deeply and profoundly wrong. What about Black Lives Matter? What has become of them? What about Ta-Nehisi Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones? Yes, I will go there. What has become of them? They were going to go to Howard and build some kind of center. Where is it? So I'll stop. I'm disappointed that you didn't go for the jugular. That's what I'm saying. Well, the thing is, who's jugular? And so, I mean, what, what it comes down to is, is, is this. Kendi is not an academic. He is not a scholar. And I don't mean that as a put down. I mean, that's not what he does. He calls what he does scholarship, but I don't think he quite gets that there's a difference between primary and secondary sources. He, he does not take original material and fashion novel interpretations. That's what academics do. He has never done that. He has chosen not to do that. That's not his mission. What he wants to be is an anti-racism activist. He happened to get a doctorate. And if you get a doctorate, it does open certain doors. That's understandable. But it's painfully clear from his CV, from frankly just listening to him for about five minutes, that he's not an academic. And if you put it the right way, you could even say it to him and he might even agree that there's a difference between what you and I cut our teeth doing and what he's doing. I think he thinks he's doing something more important and there's an argument for it. He's out in society trying his version of trying to change real lives, but that's not a scholar. The f However, all of a sudden in 2020, he gets swept up into this institution where he's supposed to be supervising real research. He's supposed to be supervising people who did choose to be academic scholars in the true sense, as opposed to his different choice of what he is going to concern himself with. And he'd also, you know, if you tried to have me administrate something, I would have that thing a smoking hole in the ground in two weeks. I would have no idea what I was doing. I don't want to do it. I get the feeling he's similar. He hadn't had any experience running anything, and he's not terribly interested in doing it. I, I feel him there, but he gets thrust into this position. 
Why would we expect him not to take it? Is he really supposed to say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a real researcher or I don't do what these people do. Who would, what would I be doing supervising these people? Especially because, and this is where I really kind of hate to go, but given his, the, the, the field that he's in, the department in particular that he got his degree in, I hate to say that too, because my mother taught at Temple University. I'm talking about a particular department, I'm talking about Malefi Kete Asante and where we would put him in terms of what scholarship actually is. That's where Kendi's degree comes from. He comes from the Afrocentrist. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. And so how would he know the difference? I mean, there's a part of it that I'm not sure he understands that he doesn't do what actual academics do. But why would we expect him to have, wait a minute, to have turned it down? And so the jugular here is Boston University. Okay. The jugular is anybody in 2020 and thereon who has casually referred to him with terms like scholar and academic and intellectual. And it's clearly. What about the MacArthur Foundation? You don't want to sound like you're jealous, but frankly, that well, too. All what about the, didn't he win a National Book Award? Yes, he did. And frankly, yeah. And so that's the jugular that you go for in that, it's kind of like what we were just talking about with Dan. There is sometimes a lowered sense of what an academic is when it comes to what Black figure is going to be celebrated. I cannot be mad at Kennedy for that. I mean, he just got swept up into something where I think all of us would have taken the money. All of us would have taken the fame. Now, he and I now have a history, which we <laughs> see started. And so, you know, I'm not saying that he and I are going to be having beers, but I'm not. Uh, all of this fell apart because he was chosen for something that he shouldn't have been chosen for. But why be mad at him? Do you see what I, do you see what I mean? Well, I don't know why defending him from anybody's anger is of concern to you, but you you can keep your own counsel on that. Let me let me just posit. Uh, I'm not, as it were, mad at him when I point out that he's a fraud. When I, when I point out that he's an empty suit, that as I said, he's a lightweight. Okay, when when I call attention to the vacuity and the emptiness of the rhetoric. How to raise an anti-racist baby? Come on. Come on. So, Glenn, if, so if, I, I'm not mad at him to, to, to say uh, you're an embarrassment. You're an absurdity. That, that, that's simply a description. That's not accurate, Glenn. You can't call him an embarrassment or an absurdity when he was put into a position by other people. If anything, they made him make himself into an embarrassment. It wasn't his fault. If things were the way they ordinarily would be under normal standards of evaluation, he would be an obscure black studies professor teaching at some state university. That's what he was before all these things happened to him by chance. But he got swept up into something. How can you call that person an embarrassment when it's not, it's not his fault? The embarrassment is BU. I'm embarrassed for Boston University as a representative of what American higher education can be. In that well, they then let's talk about that. I mean, because I agree with you that that's really the issue. And I, I'm not, I don't have a stake in uh, up or down on Kendi as such. I think his own 
biography and archivist career speaks for itself. Why don't we talk about the institutional uh, problem here? What they because did, as I say, it's not just it's not just BU. It's it's much broader than that. What BU did is an insult to Black intelligence. But let me let me change that because that's that's too mean to Kendi. What BU did <laughs> doesn't deserve it. What BU did is an oh, insult to Black achievement. And the the best defense I can imagine they would have is that of course showbiz is part of things and showbiz does attract funds, but. The idea that you, on the one hand, could be heading an anti-racist center that was so excellent 30 years ago, and that as if he is, was remotely capable of doing the same thing, he's utterly miscast, is a diminishment of, of blackness. The people who did that ought to be ashamed of themselves, frankly. What about the people who paid him 40 grand to show up and give a uh, half hour long talk without a Q&A? Do you want to put them on the list of uh, people yes. to castigate? Yes. It almost feels like they're displaying that woman who was supposed to be George Washington's nursemaid and she was supposed to be 104 years old. It's like they're showing off a Negro. And that, David, I don't, I don't have any problem with them taking the money if it's, if it's offered. But the idea that they would pretend that anything that that particular person has to say is worth that much money it's an insult. It, it, it's making a black person a show in a way. And yeah, I, th I think that's disgusting, but it's not him. It's them. Who I'm Have you actually read any of his uh, uh, stuff? Yes. I, um, so I, do you know what he says about Du Bois, about what he says about Frederick Douglass? Because Norman Finkelstein came on the Glenn show remind uh, me, a few remind months me. ago. Well, I don't know in chapter and verse because I haven't read Ibram X. Kendi and don't intend to. I skimmed the but, first. But Finkelstein and, and his, Finkelstein in his book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. Finkelstein, Norman Finkelstein, he has a book. And it's a criticism of woke uh, academic uh, stuff. And, and uh, he goes down the list of the critical race therapy. People. He goes down the Kimberly Crenshaw's and the Derek Bell's, takes on the Ta-Nehisi Coates's and the whatnot. And, and he gets to and he gets to Kendi. He has a long, long chapter on Kendi. And he reads, you know, these books and he says, this is me quoting Finkelstein, quoting Kendi on uh, people like Du Bois. And he criticizes Du Bois for, you know, being snooty and an elitist. Du Bois was an elitist. There's not any doubt about he that. He was a post-Victorian. Uh, and he criticizes Frederick Douglass for the white wives and the, and the kind of, uh, you know, Republican kind of, uh, you know, um, Frederick Douglass's view of kind of cosmopolitan identity and stuff like that. Uh, and and Finkelstein's position is, who is this guy to even open his mouth and begin to talk about these people? And they're towering figures and he is a, uh, a fraud. And so I'm saying. You talk about it as if it was just. You know, this thing happened, this mania struck society. Kendi happened to become identified as, you know, the uh, this this uh, iconic thing. And so all of this uh, largesse fell on him. It wasn't his fault. He took it. We would anybody would have taken it. Don't be mad at him. And, and I'm saying he was venal. And moreover, that these stupid ideas have infected the minds of so many people. His books, you know, the U.S. Army was buying his books and sending it out to people because that was the way in which you developed sensitivity on the racial question. It's, it's poisonous. So stupidity on steroids 
in the name of my people, I object. No, no. Um, Glenn, if I may, this, like you said. You well, know, you're going to anyway, but I'll give you my permission. Honesty is meant in friendship. You're not applying your full mental capacities to understanding a candy. He, um, <laughs> and what I mean by that, you're, you're not, you're, you're not penetrating him because I think you kind of don't want to, but think of it. He's this person who has taken on this, this post Stokely Carmichael black ideology. And he finds it congenial, partly because there is a visceral pleasure to thinking in these ways. But that ideology, fist up in the air, and he'd be wearing a dashiki if it were 45 years ago or more. Big surprise, that perspective is not great on historical perspective, other than that there was racism everywhere, i.e. stamped from the beginning, his first book. That's the historical perspective. But he, for him to imagine what it would be like to be a Frederick Douglass within the different parameters of that time, different sense of what Black issues were, what was urgent, for him to able to imagine what W.E.B. Du Bois was growing up in Great Barrington, you know, going to Europe, what blackness was at that time. Big surprise. He doesn't excel at thinking in those ways. And so to him, it's as if this Victorian man with a cane, you know, sitting at a dinner table with Kendi, saying the sorts of things Kendi, um, Du Bois would say about how some Philadelphia Negroes are lazy, etc., Kennedy can only understand that on the terms of somebody sitting there and saying it in 1975. He can't, he doesn't go further back in that way. He's not that kind of historian. I can forgive He's him. He's not any kind of historian. I can forgive him that. He's doing his best and he wasn't around real historians very much. I cannot uh, forgive him for that. Okay, it's, good. You forgive him, I don't forgive him. Okay, so we disagree about forgiving him. But, I don't, but I, what I want to talk about is the fraud that was perpetrated. What fraud? By him. The, the idea, I, I said the fraud that was perpetrated, not just by him. He's just a cog in the whole frigging yes. machine. Yes. Post-George Floyd, universities across this country committed themselves to anti-racist frenzies of one sort or another from faculty hiring to curriculum to administration over their student bodies uh, and so forth, and to their public-facing uh, activities of their uh, top administrative leadership and so on, to the philanthropists, the money that was raised, the things that were done in response in a moment of racial reckoning. He's an epitome. He epitomizes something. This is not about him personally, that you would waste your time defending him befuddles me. This is about corruption, corruption of essential institutions like the one you work for at the New York Times, about which I know you cannot speak. Corruption of museums, of orchestras. We've entertained people on this program who have spoken to us about that deep corruption of the theater and of the arts. Corruption of the sciences where they have uh, shut down STEM. Science is racist because blacks are not performing as well as they are on the basketball court in the physics laboratory. Corruption of which Ibram X. Kendi is a poster child. That's what I'm pissed off about. We are pissed off about the same thing and to the same extent. But it's, 
white people who should know better, who have put his face on all of this stuff. So basically, here he is, somebody who thinks that all of this is a good thing. There are many, many people like him. He happened to be the one who got caught like the deer in the headlights because he had written a couple of books right before 2020 that had gotten around somewhere. And so that kind of view, you and I have met many people of the Kendi view. I always think he reminds me of this person and that person and that person who nobody's ever heard of. And to be honest, views like that are less likely to wind up teaching at Harvard Law than other ones. But we've all known that guy. This one happened to get caught into something much larger than he ordinarily would have. And so it's his face on it, sure. But when I look at that face, I just think, you know, to, to an extent, until he started ragging on me, I used to think I feel kind of sorry <laughs> because he's caught okay. up in something where he can't quite handle it. And it must be hard on some nights for him. Now, frankly, I don't have much pity. If we're going to talk about the personal aspect, but that's less important. Generally, that face on all of this stuff that the army is pretending to believe and physics that doesn't require hard math and, and racist music theory and silly stuff going on in the theater and stuff going on in classical music, I all of this makes me physically sick as well. But it's not as if Ibram Kendi got up and started pressing all these buttons and having this effect. He was fostered in order to do that by people play acting about racism. Yes, that disgusts me utterly. It's really been a shame. And if by chance the downfall of that center has a domino effect and it encourages people to maybe reconsider the content of his books, although I don't see why it would, I don't see any grand implosion. I don't see why things are going to change at all. People still are going to read the books and think this is the way it should be. It's because of people buying hundreds of copies of that book and spreading it around their institutions. Those are the people who ought to be ashamed of themselves. Not, not that poor guy who just got swept up. Um, but we really, we're arguing semantics. Glenn, yeah, I'm as angry as you at all this stuff, but not at him. It's just, how, how could he have helped it? Okay, well... Um, maybe we are just uh, arguing about uh, minutia. Uh, maybe I mean because I, I know we do agree, and it's a kind of defining feature of our uh, of our brand uh, that uh, the woke racism crowd warrant to be condemned. Well, no, well criticized. Condemned is my word. I'm not sure it's your word. <laughs> they can't help it either. To an extent, yeah. criticized, yes. But I, I will unhesitantly criticize them because they ought to know better. They're acting, they're play acting. And sometimes their play acting means lionizing people who, under other circumstances, would not be and maybe should not be. Yeah, um, that's, that's the problem. It's exhausting. So you said an, an insult to, to Black intellectual... You, you you think this uh, false elevation of mediocrity to positions of honor uh, because it is in the name of some pro-Black sentiment is a betrayal? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I thought I heard you say. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if my own uh, anger doesn't really rest on that sense of betrayal and and shame really uh, you know a kind of i want the opposite of which would be pride the opposite of which would be 
Um, if I were Jewish and I were looking at the Nobel Prizes in economics or physics and I would say, ah, you see, my people have achieved. That's the upside. The, the, the downside is knowing that an empty suit is being created around and that this is what is going in front of the uh, people on behalf of the value that I also affirm of anti-racism. You know, and and then feeling patronized, you know, you don't hold me to the same standard. You, you think we're all children. You think we're for entertainment. You, you're placating us. You're afraid that we're going to throw a tantrum. You're telling us what you think we want to hear. You won't take us seriously. And that makes me angry. That is more or less my feeling, too. When you see something like that elevation, you can't help thinking, okay, that's what they think of Black people in general. You can't help thinking that to varying extents, that's being done to me, which I think both of us have to know is true. So, for example, last semester, I viciously overscheduled myself because I am <laughs> much less mature and heedful than most people would think. And I just let all this stuff go into my calendar. And I'm kind of at a new phase, especially with the times. I get asked to do a lot of things. I didn't realize what I was doing to myself. So I was doing something almost every night. I was away almost every weekend. It really wasn't a good thing, and I'm never going to allow it to happen again. But I made a list a couple months ago of all the things that I had been asked to do, and it was literally like 45 things in what felt like 80, what felt like, what was it, 90 days. And I wrote, never do this to yourself again. But if I look at that list, the truth is, I can't know how much of that was me. I know some of it was, but and how much of it was they needed a brown face, you know, especially if I was on a panel or especially if it's a speaker series, you know, and you kind of look at who else has spoken and you notice that all the other speakers over the past two years have been white. And then you think, well, was my color, especially you know, after 2020, where they're thinking we need a black one. And you know what, Glenn, you can never know. And to an extent, you have to just keep living to, to do that kind of bean counting. You can go crazy. Enjoy your life the way it is. There are many people who would love to be you. That's the way I really think of it. But still, it's, it's there. And when you see a more stark example of this sort of tokenism, yeah, it's infuriating because, and this is something that people like him would never understand. You look at it and you think, look at what they're doing to him. And then you think, you know, there, but for the sake of God, go I. It's the, same, it, it, there, it, it's the whole evaluation of the race that makes you furious in a situation like that. The head of the, the Center for Anti-Racist Research, if there was going to be one without Kendi, and you get the feeling there wasn't, but if there was going to be one, it should have been headed by somebody who probably most of us hadn't heard of. Somebody with a long CV of actual yeah. academic achievement and possibly right. a needs to. That's what it should have been. Now, like I said, maybe BU deserves a little bit of credit in that they wouldn't have gotten all that funding if it weren't for Kendi's star status. But couldn't there be something in between? And frankly, they should have settled for less funding and chosen somebody who actually had the qualifications. And so, yes, it's, it, it's infuriating. And the implosion of the center, now I can't say that it's, it's something that I'm unhappy about, but it's not me thinking there that Kendi deserves it. And that's what all of the, the headlines are saying. I now, think, what do you make? Yeah, I know you're aware of the complaints of some of the people within the center. This guy, Spencer Piston, I think is his name, political scientist. Uh, Saida Grundy, 
a sociologist. They've been quoted in the newspaper about this, and I've heard from Grundy in private correspondence, which I've shared with you. And you know that there are allegations about the in, the way way he conducted himself in his relationships to his employees and to other people. He imperious and uh, unavailable, and uh, you know capricious and and whatnot, and uh, so on, and 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 didn't just didn't handle himself very well in that uh, circumstance, uh, which is separate from the other things that you've been talking about, about being placed in a position where, you know, the, the fraud was evident, but it wasn't really his fault. What, yeah. how, how he related to his employees, how he delegated uh, responsibility, how he had attended to the requirements of living up to the promises that his grants uh, committed him to how how he handled the uh, personnel issues and whatnot. Those are his responsibility. We can't fault him if he's wrong about that, can we not? Um, I'm not sure that the powers that be had any way of knowing that was coming in 2020. I'm sure that he's capable of comporting himself properly in an interview. Yeah, that is just the individual him. And to be honest, I mean, I, I was at a conference with him at the end of 2019, um, before he was big, 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 big. He was just big, big. And it was very clear at that event that he's not a mixer, was my sense. I, what we're hearing now, I look back then and I think, yeah, the taciturn. Yeah, I, I can see from the person who I saw circulating at that thing. And notice I say saw circulating. He... Um, I never saw him once join anything. He didn't come to the party. He kind of kept himself. I can see how maybe that would translate into this person that we're hearing about. But now could anybody have known that in 2020? Not to mention that, um, you know, there are always different stories. No, I'm not going to say that. Too many people are saying that about him for it not to be true. But I don't know if anybody could have seen it in 2020. And he's hardly alone as a manager. Okay, so when's your, is that your next, uh, you got to be timely now. Is that your next column? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that I think that's Monday. Um, I wrote it yesterday at five o'clock in the morning, and it's so a, this yeah. will go up behind the paywall on Monday at uh, glenlaurie.substack, Everybody, so uh, <laughs> we're talking to ourselves because it will already be Monday before anybody actually hears this. <laughs> John, I'm glad to get the scoop on your next piece in the New York Times with which I disagree vociferously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we disagree as much as we disagree, but I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And thanks to Dan Sabotnik for joining us earlier uh, on the show. We're going to sign off. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, Jay, oh, Q&A. So uh, how about we postpone that? I wouldn't mind. Okay. Because it's been uh, on a long week, but I can yeah, do it on. We can do it soon. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch. Maybe not, talk in the next week. Not Friday, because that's my birthday. I'm, I'm, I'm doing Oh, John. Hey. <laughs> Turning 58. I was going to say 58. You're just a little younger than my lovely wife, Lawan, who was also born in 1965. <laughs> it was, well, no, it was not a good year in many ways, but yes. <laughs> So yeah, that day is my kind of blackout day. But other than that's that. the year I graduated from high school, John. Damn! <laughs> <laughs> wow.
Yeah. In my neighborhood, I'm old enough to be your father. <laughs> That's true. Wow. Yeah, but, man. Yeah. All right. Good being with you. We'll we'll you talk too. in a few days. All right. See you soon. Bye.